Hi, Changeling fans! Your friendly neighborhood Puka here with an announcement. We are pleased to let you know that our first contest for Changeling the Podcast is now live, and in keeping with October, the spoopiest month, the theme is Build a Slua. We want to see your most spidery, squamous, dastardly, dislocated, cryptic, creepy, mysterious, magnificent representative of this sinister kith. To enter, send us a character sheet following basic character creation rules with the option to add up to 100 experience points worth of advancement, as well as a compelling backstory of whatever length, but please try to keep it less than 5 pages. You're welcome to also put together character art, fiction, or other materials to support your entry, but they are not required. All of the above should be sent to podcast at changelingthepodcast.com, either in the body of an email or as an attachment, Word documents or PDFs only please. The deadline is October 10th, and we will announce the winner on or around Halloween. The winner will receive a physical copy of Kithbook Slua, and their work will be showcased along with two runners-up on our Discord. So if you've always wanted some motivation to pour energy into designing a whispery creepster, perhaps now's the time. And now, on with the show. This is Changeling the Podcast. Changeling the podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host Josh, and with us is your other host Puka. Say hi, Puka. Greets and welcomes. What are we talking about today, Puka? Dirty proles, um, commoners. Really, we're going to be looking at the book Fool's Luck: The Way of the Commoner and finding out more about the lumpen, unwashed masses of well, Concordians at least, mostly Concordian commoners. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit. There's actually more about non-Concordian than I expected, but still not a lot. Yeah. I, I had almost forgotten that this was kind of the source for most of the world tour stuff that we see in the C20 core book, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. <laughs> so. Yep. So yeah, this is published in 1999 and is actually part of the Year of the Reckoning thing, at least according to my hard copy. Yep. Which kind of works. I think it definitely tilted the book. <laughs> Let's yeah. Get into that. But it's also... I'm like, wait, Hunter the Reckoning and Fool's Luck are around the same era? That did not make sense in my head, but okay. Yeah. That's not how I remembered it. For the youths, the year of the Reckoning was the White Wolf imprint for 1999, and this is in fact the first entry in that line of books. Mm-hmm. I believe it was January 99 it came out, uh, but they were all centered around, well, I guess leading up to the release of Hunter the Reckoning, there were all of these momentous events happening around mm-hmm. the world of darkness, the biggest of which was probably the cancellation of Wraith. So, yeah. Well, in my book, it says the Technocracy Player's Guide. So mm. Eventually, Guide to Technocracy also came out part of that, which, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's not as much reckon in the Technocracy. Yeah. So, this was uh, written by Buck McKinton and Dina McKinney. Dina McKinney we've seen in a bunch of places. And I feel like we've seen Buck Marchington's name as well. Is it Markington or Marchington? Marchington looks Marchington. Right. I'm looking online and it says Buck Marchington was involved in things like Werewolf the Apocalypse Revised Edition, Tribe Book Fianna, Dark Ages Fae, Playtester for Changeling Second Edition, and is a naturalist for the Georgia State Department of Conservation. Oh, pretty cool. I guess we should just uh, dive in here. Let's do it. I bet you love the cover art. I, uh, it's fine. (laughs) 
It's not my top tier cover art, I'll say that. Yeah. But the interior art, I'm more okay with. Mm -hmm. So we start with some fiction yeah. with Emma Goldman as an epigraph, and I'm like, awesome. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of interesting quotes here, two from Babylon 5, at least. So. Yeah, I didn't need the Nathan Bedford Forrest one, I'll say that. Yeah. But uh, yes, we start this book with the return of Lady Julia Spencer Drake of House Fiona, whom we last saw in Book of Houses, because the Fiona section was written from her in-character point of view. I think she's a better character in this book, but she's still kind of stuffy, as is her satyr friend who she meets. The tone of the story, I mean, I like the opening story. The tone feels kind of stilted to me. Anyway. Yeah, I found some like weird things like, I'm like, okay, they are fae and stuff like that. But like if I walked in and somebody I didn't know and I was like visiting and then they hand me like a sort of Shirley Temple as a <laughs> random beverage. <laughs> There's little, little things like that. I'm like, what? I Honestly, it, it does sound really tasty. Um, yeah. I was kind of thrown. I remember even like as a youth reading this, I still caught this where they're talking about Gloria Steinem, but they say Gloria Steinheim. And I'm like, wait, what? Is that what, why, how she became known in the public consciousness? I, I, I don't know. Think it was. But the TV movie starred Kirstie Alley and seemed like a low budget flash in the pan kind of thing. So this is, this is like a deep cut reference for changeling players. I feel. Yeah. Nah. Maybe it's just for people who really like grenadine in their, in their <laughs> real. I am one of those. Um, yeah. In any case, <laughs> The basic plot here is that Lady Julia, after writing her Fiona treatise or whatever, had apparently put out a call for someone to help tell the story of the Accordance War from the commoner's point of view. And so Marina of Beacon Hills is a satyr who has answered the call and offers to take her to someone in the Dreaming who can help her realize mm -hmm. that goal. So into the Dreaming they go, they meet a mysterious sage. Who's very human looking. Yes, it's like a withered old man with crabby demeanor. But he does a spell and turns the elegant she into a boggin by having her peel a potato. Mm -hmm. That was the most epic potato peeling scene I've ever It read. really was. I, you know, I liked it. I mean, I liked the way that it was set up and everything. Tone aside, I like the intro fiction. And I dig the art. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a note in here too about Julia says that unlike most of her house, she had turned to passion of the mind instead of passion of the heart. And I'm like, awesome it, it does have the oh yes of course you are a satyr i am a fiona she of course we will sleep together right it's <laughs> gosh a very matter of fact chekhov's sexual tension they will bone by the end of this book yep although i'm not sure actually having read the whole book if they did i think it's implied with a, a okay. flimsy veil drawn across <laughs> okay anyway importantly in the prologue the sage whose name is krishna alexis he gives her a silvery sheet of mica to help her remember things from the dreaming which for anyone who has listened to our dreams and nightmares episode or missed an enchantment episode will recall as a thing if you go into the dreaming mm -hmm. generally you don't remember much when you come out mm -hmm. so but that's the prologue and then we turn the page to the introduction and the font shrinks by about a third <laughs> yeah it's kind of deceptive because it's like oh okay this is you get a sense like reading oh this book it won't be too dense and then then you have to squint at the page yeah. and it's like oh Right. Then you get to the history. Well, so the introduction, not to the manor born, we get those fun statistics again about politics. These are the representation in the Parliament of Dreams. 5% of Kithane are she. Yeah. That comes up a lot, referenced a lot in this book. Well, in Concordia. In Concordia, at least. Oh, okay. I, I, they may seem like across the world on average, but yeah. 
but they control 42% of the seats in the Parliament of Dream. Yeah. Meanwhile, the commoners only control between the titled and untitled ones, 55%? Uh, 58. 20% titled commoners, 38% untitled commoners, 42% shit. Oh, there's a later part that says 55%, maybe. I think they kind of took the statistics from two different sources, because it was in Nobles the Shining Host, but then it came up again somewhere else, and maybe it was different there. Mm -hmm. In any case, so in terms of what this book is about, on page 14, we get... The Fool's Luck, The Way of the Commoner is an overview of the history, politics, and social lives of commoners. Pretty straightforward, also incredibly broad <laughs> So, yeah. in terms of assessing the book. Um, well, it is that, I would say. It's successful. Yeah. <laughs> it's that. <laughs> to see how much of that it, in fact, is. Yep. We're also told that it'll give us basic facts on changelings in other parts of the world. The theme is the maelstrom of tradition and modernity in strife. This is sort of like the meta plot tie-in part two because David has recently disappeared and everyone's still kind of running around as a result of that. War is brewing. Mm -hmm. We are informed. Yeah, when we when we get to War and Concordia, it's like these two books definitely go together, like as a before and after. So yeah, it's kind of like Kingdom of Willows leads into this one, leads into War and Concordia. Yeah, there's mentions of that's the meta plot in the other books, but these are like the big one shout out also to walking away from arcadia who did a series on the meta plot books in order Mm -hmm. mood false optimism and facades they definitely are leaning into the political and warfare angles here pretty hard but Mm -hmm. not in a way that kind of unites them with commonerness i feel like i don't know well it's yeah we'll we'll talk about through the book that there's a bit of a uneven tone between sections yeah Speaking of unevenness, how about this list of enlightening media? <laughs> I like that David Bowie shows up, but as an actor, not a right. musician. Also, the Goblin King's not a commoner. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> we have like recommended reading things like Thomas Jefferson, Vladimir Lenin, William Sapphire, Ugh. but then like The Hobbit. <laughs> yep. And Charles DeLint. I'm always here for Charles DeLint recommendations, but it just one of these things is not like the other, you know? Yeah, the Charles DeLint, I see. Actually, The Hobbit's the one that seems most incongruous to me. Well, and then they're like, oh, political rock, like U2, Bob Marley, but then also German and Russian composers like Wagner, and then the Thrill Kill Cult and Nine Inch Nails. And I'm like, it's just an eclectic what? soundtrack. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, okay, I can listen to those things. Great. But it's, why is yeah. that commoners? Well, it seems like, that, that's what I mean. It seems like commoner, political, and warfare are all three separate angles running parallel in this book rather than being braided together. Yeah. So. And then we get a lexicon where, okay, all these are terms in this book. But yeah. Some are throwaway things that are explained in this part they're throwing away, and some are like actually kind of relevant. Yeah. Mostly just the names for the different places of the Fae Mm -hmm. around the world. It does say here that the Galatian Confederation includes Eastern Europe, which got left out in C20. Yeah, I was curious how that works with the whole Baba Yaga thing. Yeah. It is nice to have the refreshers for the different political parties. because Mm -hmm. (laughs) Information that I did not retain very, very well. Then we get to chapter one, The Victors, The Spoils, A Guide to Commoner History. The densest and longest chapter by far. Yep. And we get another where the Fae came from. And 
I don't know. Do we want to go through all this again? Because like well, all these books. <laughs> what I want to say about this is it's very similar to Isle of the Mighty in terms of its structure, where there's just this extended lecture by some random fey mm-hmm. dude. But I kind of like it. It's it doesn't have the conceit of like, oh, these sidebars are actually magical PowerPoint slides. But mm-hmm. I mean, because the the frame narrative is Lady Julia turned into a boggan who goes by the name Gloria is kind of mixing these extended interviews with snippets and tidbits from the other commoners that she meets. And that does, I think, kind of come through in the way this chapter is structured. So like as a history chapter goes, if it's going to be in character, I think this is a good way to go about it. Yeah. And it does get more into, like it or not, the pre-Columbian Kithane in the Americas thing. I'm going to go with not on that. (laughs) Yeah. This one bugged me less than other times they get into it. Yes. And I was glad to see more attention given to Bjarni Herjolfsson as a troll kinane in the Norse settlement of Newfoundland than the Madokshit in the southeast. Even the Madokshit made it seem like it was another little failed colony kind of thing, not a... Yeah. It does make me wonder, though, if enough people buy into the dream or the lore of a mythic Welsh Appalachian colony, what happens? Does it just come into being in the dreaming and then it actually exists? Maybe that's how it ended up in Changeling. Yeah. Is the dreaming retroactive? Food for thought. Mm-hmm. I do also like the take on the sundering in here where they say it really started when people stopped believing stories. Like, yeah, that, that captures a lot. Yeah. And the dates I like too. It's like just before the first of the Greek writing mm-hmm. that we get. Pre-Socratic sundering. Yeah, but before the pre-Socratics. Then we get to the shattering. Yeah, the cause of this with the War of the Courts, I don't don't recall seeing before, and I thought that actually made a bit more sense. (laughs) Although, as a slight historical nitpick, I wonder if they meant to link it to the 14th century, because they talk about, like, the winters and the famines and the rains and then all that, and that was 1315 through 1317. So, anyway. The Unseely believed that fomenting chaos would stave off the banality that was covering the land by generating dark glamour. This is the first time I actually also recall it saying the Unseelie were the ones that stopped the switching as opposed to the Seelie, because I've come across the Mm. Seelie one before. So that's a nice little bit of also, well, this is all explicitly unreliable narrator. So yes, (laughs) some very unreliable as we get on to the history of the US. Anyway, I don't think he ever says what court he is either. Mm. Although he seems Seelie. There's notes that the Black Death poisoned glamour and wiped out belief in the Fae along with mortal lives. Mm-hmm. The implication of the church stepping into that gap. Silver's Gate collapses in 1349, and there's lots of forgetting and lots of dead chimera and mm-hmm. lots of commoners claiming the lands that the she abandoned. And this gets into a lot more detail of the interregnum than... Yeah, 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 which I'm grateful which for. Which makes sense for commoners. Well, commoners, they were around for it. So. Yeah. But I mean, you remember how we went through like the Kith books, and in some cases it was like, well, here's what happened in antiquity and then the industrial revolution came and you're like wait yeah so um yeah after the compact of 1353 that ended the war between the silly and unsealy courts facilitated by the fed up fiana the truce was sanctified by the dreaming and presumably that's what led to the dual legacies system in the modern changelands Mm. Mm -hmm. i also noted with interest the mention of quote kiths since lost and forgotten Mm. Yeah, that's that's also been suggested. I know, but it's just great to see it spelled out. Yeah. They were there. Yeah. 
there's a little bit yeah it gets into the renaissance going man the she missed out on that one maybe they would have liked it yep there's a nice line about how the enlightenment was like a thorny rose beautiful yet painfully sharp mm -hmm. they say that during the interregnum bale fires were very rare and it was a very mixed blessings kind of time because knockers obviously with every technological leap forward they must have been just happy as clams yeah Oh, this was super anti-knocker, this writer. <laughs> yeah. But I think back to when we discussed Sandman and Neil Gaiman famously when he was asked what the theme of Sandman was and he described it as the king of dreams learns that he must change or die and makes his choice. And I think mm -hmm. that that's the interregnum. The changelings who were able to kind of keep up with the changes and adapt as they unfolded they're the ones that have survived to the present day, for better or for worse. So, Then we get to sort of the basically British North America. And oh, this is, this is the part of the book that made me the most uncomfortable. U.S. history part before the resurgence. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't great. Well, yeah. So it gets into the American Revolution was great and perfect, unlike that French Revolution. I'm like, okay. That... And then you know, gets into the Civil War and doesn't mention slavery at all as a thing. It's a very War of Northern Aggression take. Yeah. Well, they also call it the War Between the States, which is like, mm, these were Southern writers. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. To be fair, I think that this interview is supposed to be taking place in the Kingdom of Willows, but nevertheless. Yeah. I can understand why they wanted to focus on the independence movements in this context, because obviously... Mm -hmm. Within the meta plot, this is like the moment when the commoner's like, oh, oh, maybe we can like throw off the she now. And as of C20, that didn't happen. But I like that the dream of independence is part of like what this book is tilting at. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they, they talk about these sort of shifting us versus them dynamics and how who us is and who them is are, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's something which changes from time to time and place to place. But that spirit of contrariness, I guess, is like always present. Mm -hmm. Although it does mention in this sidebar on changeling politics in early America about changelings in Chicago, like during revolutionary times. And it's like, uh, Chicago was not a city. <laughs> Industrial revolution happens. The romantic era happens. Again, all of these are kind of presented as like mixed bags. Like, yeah, there was some glamour. There was also some really awful banality. And then we get to the 20th century. World War One. Yeah, in the timeline, they, they put something about like Titanic sinks. I'm like, what? <laughs> they, didn't, they don't really cover that. But anyway, that's fine. World War One. they give pretty good description, I think, of what it would be like yeah. for the day. They call it the most banal conflict that ever happened. And it's like, well... Yeah, but then World War II happens. <laughs> no, World War One, I'd say, is way more of a banal. Like, that's a pretty standard take of the meat grinder aspect of World War One. I. I think it suffices to say that both World Wars could yeah. could be entrance in the most banal conflict ever. Yeah, I think it's not completely ridiculous that an in-character change like that. Sure. Well, and at the time, I mean, that's why it's the war to end all wars and the Great War. Yeah. I mean, at the time it happened. It was certainly. Yeah. But I mean, it also had like the many, many years of not really shifting lines and mm -hmm. at least in some fronts. There's a neat little sidebar about aerial combat being the only kind of glamorous war thing that happened at the time. Mm -hmm. And it does make me think of Snoopy. <laughs> the glamour of dogfights. Yep. 
Roaring Twenties and the Depression are a stark contrast of glamour and banality. There was a line about the Great Depression wasn't as bad as you might think, but then it's talking <laughs> about not as bad for Faye as you might think. Yeah. There's a great one-shot idea in here, which I'm totally going to put a pin in and run with, which is to do uh, how changelings handle the War of the Worlds broadcast in 1937. <laughs> Just chimerical tripods running all over New Jersey that you have to stop. And I'm like, yes, I want this. So here it says that World War II was not as numbingly banal as the First World War. Yeah. Regardless of what we do with that, I, I'm really uncomfortable by the sort of like attempt to sort the kiths into one side or the other. I don't know. They have a lot of kiths all over the place in this. Like, and if they're still getting down, like if it also depends on like what is, does Europe have more satyrs in Greece than the rest of Europe or something like that? Then it would make a bit more. Yeah. It's just not something I feel particularly inclined to explore, I guess. Yeah. I would just like I would the Great Depression or anything else horrible. Yeah, perhaps. When we get to Book of Lost Houses, one of the um, opening chapter fictions is like set in World War II, and I'm like, oh boy. But um, then we get the 50s. Yeah. The American Dream and McCarthyism. And super banal, way worse than the Great Depression. Have you noticed, though, that like each of these little subsections, the structure is basically new forms of glamour, but of course also banality. Yep. Like it just kind of keeps going this and then that. If, I was kept wondering if there was different authors, though. It felt like the tone kept shifting. For different it could people. be. I mean, I don't know which of the two of them. At least it's only two authors, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know who wrote what. The 60s were a wild time. But also Vietnam. Talk about Vietnam in this part. They mention it briefly. There's also a few Fae who show up during the Accordance War who are mentioned to be Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. Actually, this book is less super American focused in some places too, but that's American history. Never mind. Yeah, same for the sixties. Yeah. Well, and like, here's the thing: <laughs> I don't really fault the changeling line overall, and I know we've kind of talked about this to some extent yeah. before, for focusing on Concordia and U.S. history because that's what the writers knew. I mm-hmm. fully agree that it would have been nice to get more information about. Yeah. Well, this book actually does a bit more about the around the world. Some of this stuff, like they acknowledge that world war one started in 1914 and that world war two started in 1939. Like it's well, if we're setting the bar that low, <laughs> but I mean, if they can speak to the sort of through line of American history and society and culture that has led to commoners in Concordia, because commoners are the ones who would have that. The she don't have as much of that baggage, or the Arcadian she at least. So I feel like exploring some of those significant things, like, I mean, frankly, the things that I learned in fourth grade history class and, and their impact on changeling life that is probably, if a Boggan walked into a freehold and asked a satyr to tell her about Cathane history, that is probably what she would get. Mm-hmm. So there's a wonderful sidebar titled Raid of the Shining Host that gives like a redcap's eye view of when the she returned, the moment mm-hmm. of. A lot of thunderclaps. So it goes, It was just after we watched the moon landing. I went outside and felt the glamour rising in the air. It was that sort of oppressive excitement you feel when a big storm is on its way. Then a sound like a thunderclap rent the air, and there they were, a ghostly and majestic procession of tall, slender, and utterly beautiful she, riding proud horses with glowing eyes. Their clothes were finer than silk, looked like they'd been spun from colored cobwebs, and you'd have bankrupted the country if you bought all the gold and jewels they wore. 
The leader of the procession was the most regal of them all. Her beauty was like the driven snow and sunshine, blinding and cold. I couldn't bear to look at her, to look anywhere except the ground. Compared to her, I was a worm. She never spared me a glance, just rode on. Later in the line, a man did spare me a look, like what you might give an ant that just walked across your sandwich. I really wanted to crawl under a rock. I've seen she since then in the dreaming, and let me tell you, those changelings surely are just shadows of the true fae. I dig that. I dig that that's, mm-hmm. that's the she at the moment of their greatest power. And then they're like, oh, what's this banality stuff? Quick, get into a human body. Mm-hmm. And it even says some of them didn't died from the banality. Yep. Then there's the so-called Great Land Rush, where the Shi are trying to reclaim freeholds, and that the commoners were kind of split in their reaction. Some of them were like, no, get your own. We've spent 600 years figuring out how to do things ourselves, and you don't get to just walk in and do what you want. But then a fair number of commoners were also like, oh, we're so glad you're back. Yep. And uh, swore fealty and everything. The royalists. But then, of course, the Beltane Massacre. So if you want a blow-by-blow of the Accordance War, the second half of this chapter is where it's at. Yep. Maybe we shouldn't do the full blow-by-blow for the... There's a few interesting points, though, I think we could... Yeah. yeah. The thing is, there's, like, this whole culture of military history buffs. Like, when somebody says, oh, I'm a history buff, and what it really means is that they know all the troop movements for every battle in Insert War here... And that's the kind of feeling that I get from this. I won't deny Mm -hmm. that it can be a potent dream, Mm -hmm. that it can be significant for a variety of reasons, but there's like an unrelentingness to it that just kind of sidesteps everything else that was going on at the same time. So we have all these like battles and things. I'm like, yeah, but also Led Zeppelin was around. (laughs) Or Pink Floyd or David Bowie. Like, you know. But when you get a full-on civil war that everybody has is kind of stuck into i suppose like yeah. it overwhelms everything yeah it's not like something far away that you could just if you weren't the soldier you're not really affected no it's in your home yeah so, but like the dis the time difference too like this was i guess actually almost 30 years beforehand not 20 but that's still a bit different than like the over 50 years ago from now right so yeah and i mean the narrator is clearly someone who lived through this experience mm-hmm But I just think, like, they would still need glamour. They would still need dreamers. They would still have mortal lives that they had to at least figure out what to do with them. And Yeah, something talking about how that would have worked. Yeah, just even a little bit would have been, you know, in any case. um... Yeah, it's not just, yeah. There there is one little bit of political thing I found interesting because I didn't realize it, where Caliburn came from. Daffle brought it with him. Oh, yeah. It's the sword of the High King. Yeah, so he was the High King, and he came in from yes. Arcadia with it. Like, I just never, it didn't cl- click with me. So so it doesn't always pick good people. Okay. Well, and that that speaks to, there's a, in the opening passages here, it talks about the advantages that she had, which were primarily their treasures and their magic and the reawakening of ancient pacts that they had, versus the commoners having numbers and spirit and the home court advantage. So those she, they're just terrible cheats. They talk about Kinane allies, the few inanime who got caught up in the conflict, the werewolves being dragged in to some extent by those sheep pacts, I thought was an interesting kind of note. Like, mm-hmm. they must have hated that. Yeah, because they also had alliances with the commoners. So it was like, right. So they tried to kind of be like, this is an internal matter. And mostly the Order of Hermes were the ones roped in. And the Verbena. I like that as a, um, a proxy war, like the Verbena and the Hermetics using the Accordance War to hash out their 
disagreements. Yeah, losing involvement throughout it just seemed a lot like talking about real world colonial powers fighting in the Americas. Hmm. So they talk about it as a frontless war. Nevertheless, it seems like there was a distinct front because we're told that as soon as the Beltane massacre happened and all this, she realized, oh crap, we better get together and yeah. get ready to defend ourselves. They all kind of flocked to San Francisco because that's where Davis was. And then the course of the war kind of spread up the coast and then slowly spread east until you get to the Battle of Manhattan. So that seems mm -hmm. pretty fronty to me. I read it more like there's the big forces clashing with each other hmm. and they're moving throughout Concordia. But it's not like there's a front where you can say on this side is commoners and that side is she. It was more like there were little battles all over the place. And then these big ones where they're meeting up because one side wouldn't let the other one just run ragged without any defense right so. i suppose but it just it definitely seems to me like and they even say as as you come up on the manhattan section that the commoners realized that she had kind of been harrying them all into new york mm -hmm. so it seems like the territories that are conquered are kind of contiguous but it's not like there's a map or anything to help with this so. yeah they also said they implied the commoners basically held onto the kingdom of northern ice entirely okay well, excellent <laughs> Philadelphia, on the other hand, was like the Antietam of the war. So. so yes, very briefly, 1970, the Year of Sorrow involves the battles for San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, and Vancouver. The commoners are still figuring out trods because a lot of them had only recently reopened. And I wonder if the Xi were kind of staving off banality by throwing themselves just fully into the war and pretending to be reenactors. <laughs> like just, that was how they made it. I think they were just feeding off their uh, freeholds a lot. That too. Well, and there was a lot of discontent. Something that occurred to me um, between Beltane, May 1st, 1970, and the Battle of San Francisco, May 12th, 1970, were the Kent State shootings, which was like such a flashpoint for protest, you know, in response to Vietnam in particular, but mm -hmm. then just in general. And it's, I could imagine some contingent of she like riding that wave and like yep. drawing strength from angry glamour, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a period where a changeling war, civil war like this could kind of be not picked up by the, mm -hmm. by the mortals. Plus all the SCA and Renaissance Fair stuff getting going at the time. Mm -hmm. It's just weird things. People just all sorts of little weird things. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so then the Seely and Unseely she kind of had their own internal strife for several months apparently but worked it out by may 1971 and continued their advance through colorado into the plains the first battle of the plains where they were led by one of those vietnam vet trolls checked the nobles advance a bit and we get the sidebar about the fall of silver creek which is one of the most messed up parts of the the she history this is like what a geese looks like when it sucks mm-hmm I think geese generally suck. But. Yeah. The messed up story of what Sovereign can actually do. Mm -hmm. Then 1972, the Year of Failing Hope. I kind of like these titles better than like the White Wolf imprint titles. <laughs> the Bluegrass Campaign is probably not what I'm picturing in my head, though. No, no, no. It, it is much less fun. No dueling banjos, literally. <laughs> I think Deliverance did come out like around that time. So. <laughs> there were just some random struggles in St. Louis and wherever, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. General Lyros the Troll really takes command of the commoners at this time. He's like the commoners George Washington. 
So, mm-hmm. 1973, uh, the Battle of Philadelphia was a very symbolic one, and the commoners, I think it's all of them fell, like all of the commoners fell defending the city. Mm-hmm. The bloodiest battle of the war. Then there was the Great Lakes Campaign, which was the naval battles. And there's a suggestion that the Shi, who were the victors in that battle, were then entirely slain by werewolves, but it's unclear. Yeah. Red Talons, maybe. There are a lot of wolves on that island, but yeah. islands, I don't think. <laughs> but that's why Taranar is not there, and is mm-hmm. in New York instead. And then the commoners held the Canadian side of Niagara Falls against the Shi at the end of the year, so mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> There's a sidebar here on prisoners, which kind of talks about the cruel and unusual punishments on both sides, which, all right, I think it's Mm -hmm. war is hell. And this is a reminder. Yeah. There's also some battle objectives where it says like the, she liked the big battles and the commoners realized those were bad because she kept winning them. So yep. Guerrilla tactics. Then at the end of 1973, start of 1974, we have the battles of Manhattan, which we've seen numerous Mm -hmm. times. (laughs) Yep. But very briefly, the nobles led by Davith faced off against the harried commoners led by Lairos, and they went back and forth across the city doing street-to-street fighting. It would have been a draw, but then Davith was murdered by treachery, and then the tide turned. The commoners effectively won. David found Caliburn. Yeah, I get the impression if David hadn't found Caliburn by like 1975, it might look more like the Galatian Confederation Mm -hmm. than what we actually got. Like the the commoners were starting to win a lot of things. Yep. There's some nice notes about the air war. Mm-hmm. She had wyverns and then war balloons, basically. So more for the realm of balloon. Mm-hmm. And then the knockers technology for that side. And then there was a big fight where a damaged passenger plane passed by and the entire... Yes. <laughs> both fleets just vanished into the dreaming. Punted into myth. Mm-hmm. 1974... King Barabbas takes Kingdom of Willows. He later gets what he deserved. Queen Morgana subdues the Kingdom of White Sands, but she's pretty chill, and people are like, okay, we're cool with her. The second Battle of the Plains was the last and probably largest sort of pitched battle, and in the aftermath of it, there's like a field of bloodthirsty brambles growing over the site somewhere mm-hmm. out on the plains. I think that, that one's also in Canada, I think. Uh, yes, the Saskatchewan-North Dakota border. Battle of North Ford, where one of the Iron Brigade kind of mows through some trolls shouting the names of the martyrs of Beltane. I actually quite liked that little vignette, even though it's a rough read. The satyr who's narrating it ends by saying, It was horrible. I'm proud of myself for standing with the others. I'm not proud about everything I saw or did, but I won't apologize. It was war. I'm like, that's pretty grim. Mm -hmm. But then, um... David does a tree of accord. Yes. And people are like, we don't trust you. The commoner leaders sent there were like, so here's what we're going to do if they kill you again. Yeah. But then the trolls were like, we accept. And then everyone else like, all right, fine. As much snark as David gets and deserves, it is important to remember that he ended what could have been. I mean, to your point about the Galatian Confederation, if that had been the eventual shape of Concordia, I think it would have been a lot longer. It would have been many years Mm -hmm. before that actually happened. So David stepping up and trying to make a truce when he did presumably saved a lot of bloodshed and maybe kept the population of oh, yeah. from collapsing. And I think most of the snark about David's more about his writing rather than his character. Yeah, 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 for sure. 
There are some interesting sidebars here too on kind of like the range of views on things like loyalism, pacifism, morality, honor and glory and war, just like from different Kithian perspectives. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff when I was saying I like these sort of scrapbooky moments on the side of the main history lecture. I really enjoy mm-hmm. having those perspectives in the mix because I think if you are a player trying to think about, well, how does my character feel about the Accordance War? Were they there or not there? And how does that shape their perspective? You have a range of options that could like inform your opinion. So I dig that. And then they get to the aftermath where uh, just because the truce is declared doesn't mean both sides stop fighting. Yeah. And even David had to like got to the point where he was like sending out troops to quell them on both sides. Yeah. She taking hostages, I mean, wards um, into yeah. their courts. But yeah, eventually things wound down, at least on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, we got a little bit on Britain and Ireland. Well, the War of Ivy sort of covers both. It's complicated, partly because England, the English, you got involved in Ireland. And anyway, got messy. Which, again, we saw much more extensively in Isle of the Mighty and Court of All Kings. Mm-hmm. And then we get the big mainland Europe thing, which I don't know if we got before this point. Nope, we did not. Yeah, has a whole bunch of timeline and then some brief paragraphs talking about. Yeah. I think this is mostly the same as is in C20, where it's like France, known as Neustria, is mm-hmm. incredibly she heavy and conservative. I still don't understand that one, but that's a, another story. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes some sense because it makes sense to me that the she would flock back there. Yep. It doesn't make sense to me that the commoners would lose there. Yep. I mean, it must have just been a numbers thing because, like, when I think about France 1968, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's or, like, yeah, you know, we're France now. It was not a rollover and take it kind of mentality among the commoners. No. <laughs> so, Scandinavia was a model for us all, naturally. Yeah, that one made a little bit more sense, but well, it does seem like they were just trying to parallel. Yeah. You know, Scandinavia has pretty stable constitutional monarchy. The low countries are like, we're going to stay neutral. But it's not like, it's definitely not Europe is. The the monarchies are not England, Ireland, Scandinavia, and France. That's not (laughs) Right. For the Scandinavian part and for the low countries part, I think they basically Mm -hmm. just paralleled their impressions of Mm -hmm. mortal politics. Yep. Since then, from the 70s and 80s to the present, which means 1999. Mm Mm-hmm. There's the comment here that the Dreaming's influence is stronger now than before the Resurgence, and that's like a very meta plot comment, I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Oh, I think it is. I guess you can still kind of work that into the C20 timeline and say, yes, the Dreaming's influence is stronger because the Evanescence is coming. Well, even in the C20 timeline, you still have way more freeholds active than before the Resurgence. It's true. General Lyro speaks. He is not confident in the aftermath of David's disappearance. But then there's Baradin, who is an issue, who's more optimistic. It talks about the coming of spring and the prophecies of Balin, which I have no idea what those are, and how they point to restoration. They talk, they get into a little bit of it in this book. Yep. So like, there's this prophecy that says, Two Kithane, one lowborn, one high, will meet as equals. Together they shall discover the key that will open the silver gate. When the light of rarefied glamour pours forth from the gate, then comes the true king, who brings light and fire, great as the summer sun. I don't remember that being one of the time of judgment scenarios, but... I feel maybe... like that, well, I mean, Keys of the Kingdom. Right, so it, it seems like they were foreshadowing that, but then it didn't actually happen, so... Yeah. yeah. Just like old David returning to see Tony's life. Yeah. So yeah, 
grumblings of more war and mm -hmm. again they really leaned into war dreams and political dreams for this chapter a yeah. lot and then also going through like how things are felt across the world too mm -hmm. well across the world but primarily western and northern europe <laughs> yeah this whole thing about like oh everyone should avoid south america i don't like, know don't, why they did what? that like south america and the ussr are the two places they can't go regardless for such a meaty chapter i won't say it's like everyone should read this and know this inside and out but if you need some historical point of reference for a character or whatever this might have some useful pieces to point to mm -hmm. it kept moving i liked the way it was written i'm into it mm -hmm. yeah as much as the a few little bits i strongly objected to most of it was actually very good yeah which brings us into chapter two Mm -hmm. natural orders i do like the little asides from julia turned gloria where she's like oh i'm so confused and it's like a she's eyes are being opened the book of white privilege <laughs> basically so when it comes to fey feudalism we get notes about how some commoners might be into it for the desire to have protection from their mm -hmm. lord or lady or out of the belief that people actually follow the tenets of fey feudalism that are listed here which are, fealty is neither taken nor given lightly. Lords and ladies must protect those who swear fealty to them. Fay who swear fealty to a lord or lady owe that noble allegiance and obedience. And a fay's word or oath is binding with the force of the dreaming. I don't know if I would like living by these tenets, but I like that they exist as kind of this yeah. thing on top of the SG. And if it's like really dangerous if you're not doing that, if you're not swearing fealty, but yeah it gives a reason why someone might swear fealty if they thought this would be upheld yeah and it pairs it with like some musings on the nature of freedom and the uncertainty at a meta plot level because like without david holding his system of governance together with both hands mm -hmm. a lot of these Cathane are like well what's going to happen now yep. and then we get a may west quote <laughs> it ain't no sin if you crack a few laws now and then just so long as you don't break any I don't know if that was a Mae West voice. I, I like Mae West, but I can't do a Mae West voice. It sounded more like a gangster. from. <laughs> we get some perspectives on the escheat, what the rights are, and then what the reality is, how mm -hmm. commoners feel about it. Commoners abide by the right of rescue to the letter, mm -hmm. which I think is a relic of the interregnum, most likely. Yep. Though it does imply that there's the occasional commoner who doesn't, but they're not liked by anybody then. Yep. Safe haven, too. It says commoners have always welcomed their fellow changelings, no matter what court or kith. Yeah. Unlike nobles. They might not be feeling entirely welcome while there, but they're, like, let in and stuff. Yeah. Then there's the seemings part. Yeah, this this bit's one of those where it starts to be like, how would you apply this to C20? Because seemings play a different, very different role now. I think it still works perfectly for C20. All you have to do is change childlings to children, wilders to youths, and grumps to adults. Oh, okay. And it works fine. So for the childling part, it's like how to safely and correctly help a kid get out of a banal house or bad situation. Mm -hmm. With wilders, it's how to guide them safely through adventure and whatever. And as a grump, how you find joy and responsibility and learn how to fade away gracefully. So it's centering that balance of fey and mortal in a way that makes sense that it would matter most to commoners. And I like that. Especially as a grump, I like. <laughs> yeah. I get into the courts and codes. 
from an unseelie this time. An unseelie puka, no less, speaking of unreliable narrators. Maybe a seelie puka, then. Yeah. He's got some great quotes in here, though. Yeah. Beauty is life. Sure, I like pretty things. Who doesn't? But there's more to life than that. What about danger? Yeah. <laughs> That's his middle name. Phineas Danger Todd. I don't quite like... I, I feel like there's an implication in here that Unseelie only get glamour from ravaging. It doesn't yeah. spell that out, but that's kind of the... So like when the Unseelie code says glamour is free, I feel like throughout the books there's often that idea. But there's nothing that says an Unseelie can't have dreamers who they muse. And I wish yeah. that there was... And it doesn't actually say ravaging, though. It's a little bit unclear exactly what they're doing. But Yeah. But I feel like that's the implication. And I mean, the core books certainly say they ravage more than the ceiling. And I wish we got more about unsealing using relationships. But hmm. Well, we get that in C20. That's true. I dig the association of permanently split equal courts with like conservatism among the Fae and then the perspective that changelings all naturally flow through ceiling and unsealing at different times as being a more modernist take. I think that's an interesting tidbit. Mm -hmm. And then there's festivals. Yeah. Once again, Boxing Day is the... I don't know if anybody who's not American has that take on Boxing Day, but anyway. <laughs> the whole commoner thing. and Yeah. yeah. It's Ren Day to me. It's when you go on the Ren Hunt. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's where you hang around your pajamas playing with the toys you opened yesterday. Also that. Then Marina the Satyr talks about political factions. Oh, we also have a, a sidebar here on the Declaration of Sovereignty from mm -hmm. Slua in Baltimore. It's like, imagine if the Continental Congress that drafted the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. in the middle of working on that document got summoned to a meeting and slaughtered with iron knives. And no one knows where the declaration went. Right. Where's the draft? But that, I mean, that's a story hook waiting to be. Mm -hmm. To find a copy of that would be like, ooh. Yep. And then we get hearty lines, and I'm like, you said that's like, oh, we can't keep track of all this. I'm like, this is very <laughs> dull. Um, or very straightforward but it's short they even have like <laughs> conservatives are right wing and then moderates in the middle and then radicals on the left and it's just matching up with the she impulses and he explains where to put them on your political compass well but they do point out that the she are always going to be to the right if that right left dichotomy mm -hmm. even really applies here of the commoners so the conservative commoners well, they explicitly use the right left dichotomy throughout this so. well yeah i don't know if that really works but sure <laughs> Yeah. So it, well, from the original terms from like France, where it came from, I think that's I don't think that's the way they're using it here. <laughs> but it does point out like the conservative commoners are still more liberal, I suppose, than the Shi traditionalists. Mm -hmm. So the Shi are always going to skew more conservative. Yeah, it's just it's just how pro or anti yeah. nobility and monarchy are you? I do like the conceit of having. The Parliament of Dreams described by three different texts from very different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty cool. Half she and half commoner by intent, heavily skewed towards the Sealy, which the Unsealy can't abide. The mood of the body is essentially coalitionist. Yep. There's a quote from Vlad Rogvodov, Red Cap, where he says that denying the Unsealy is silencing half of your own soul. And I'm like, yeah. And then we get secret societies where I'm like, okay. Why do they call these secret societies if everybody knows about them and they're not even hiding them? But <laughs> at least some of them. Isn't there a line later on where it's like, these societies aren't really that secret? But Yeah. A lot of these are just from other books, like Shadow, The Shining Host and Shadow Court. Yeah. But there's a few new ones. Mm -hmm. Emma's Little Helpers. 
who are all about rescuing children and will go quite extreme ways to do that. Yes. The Iron Brigade, who are the iron-wielding troll and red-cap unseely gang. Mm -hmm. Who work for a quote-unquote duke. Mm. The Low Road, who ferret outlaw commoners to safety. They're very roguish. Yeah, this whole bit about, oh, the punishment is just having to clean the... I'm like, mm, I think that's definitely unreliable narrator there. Yeah. It's a troll mercenary who's narrating this section, so it should be reliable. But Then Hugin and Munin, a highly secret anti-monarchist group of... They're kind of like black ops. <laughs> An actual secret society. Yeah. The Minutemen who liberate commoners from psychopathic Shi overlords. The Order of Bianca, who are like the commoner version of the Order of Eliathea, rescuing newborn changelings from banality. I've already seen the monkey's paw. I've already seen the ranter. The Seekers of Lioness. That's the one you're, you're like, what's this prophecy about? It's like a, a cult. That's kind of neat. Changeling yeah. cults. Well, changelings within them. Interestingly, I like how they see David as Uther, the father of Arthur, yeah. and that the path to Arcadia is yet to be found. Yeah. A Kithane apocalyptic cult and all. Yeah. The Silver Rose, which is a European thing, were active in the Five Years' War and now are doing a lot of, are still active, trying to assist the Galician Confederation. And the sneakers who are infiltrators and spies. See, this is what I this is what I'm talking about. We need World of Darkness, and it's like Shadowrun. Yeah, <laughs> like you just hire this group to do underhanded things for you. Well, and it's also like they have one member from each of the eight commoner core Kithane in this edition, mm -hmm. and they each have a specialty. And it's like, oh, this is so Mission Impossible, and I love it. A nimble fingered boga named Frankie James, and a knocker fix it called Candy. I'm like, this is just. <laughs> Leaf Eyecatcher, troll specializing in video and audio. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, and then Veterans of the Accordance War. They needed a corresponding thing to VFW. I also dig this little sidebar on, so you want to join a motley. I think that's useful. Yeah. Like, to give context for a character's implied origin before... And, th and this still seems to be motley, not as player character group, but as, like, the common or equivalent of, like, a household well it's everyone everyone you know from the freehold kind of mm -hmm. we get some perspectives between from commoners towards others aside from knockers they seem indifferent to house dougal they're suspicious of Ilanid. they're pretty close with fiona until fiona kind of i don't know dumps them yeah i think the, the, the kylie a lot fiona just have sex a lot it was like, yeah there's more to that house than that well there should be anyway yeah. I don't know. I don't know if Book of Houses really redeemed them in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Gwydion, they're like, eh, okay, whatever, but the trolls like them. They're grateful for the generosity of Liam, though few would admit it, and they don't really know much about Skaha, the Unseelie Houses, or the Shadow Court. I am curious how this section would be written after Book of Lost Houses came out, and like, after Book of Houses 2 came out way longer that's how it's yeah written. <laughs> well they probably actually have opinions because they've sort of yeah. retconned it to be like oh yeah everyone's known who house Avil is for the whole time mm -hmm. there's a very long sidebar that takes up almost an entire page that's basically just meta plot on the impending civil war i guess it's good because it provides you with hooks to build your own story if you want to run a here comes the kithane war kind of game like, it doesn't just give the metaplot details. It's like, well, here's some political things to consider and some social forces at play. I'm like, all right. Uh, titled commoners. They're like basically just 
sellouts. Trust to fight either side that much. <laughs> yeah, sellouts or from the she side, they're not greedy. Not. But they still want those sweet, sweet freeholds, so they'll take that title if it's offered. Mm-hmm. And the Galleon are now just two groups. <laughs> the Nunihi and the Inanime. I do find this book's getting less bad towards the Nunihi than previous Changeling books. Yes, slowly but surely. It's not perfect, but it's moving in the right direction. It might also be one of the last times we actually see them, though. Because mm-hmm. there's, there's not that many second edition books left. <laughs> yep. There's some notes on prodigals. They don't really deal with vampires. Werewolves, most of their ancient pacts are with the she rather than with the commoners. The mages make them uneasy, and ghosts confuse them. And House Mernita from the Mahi Wizards. They were gone. Gone. Or are they? Yep. Dum, dum, dum. Autumn people. Don't like autumn people. There's a surprise. Also daunting. Yep. And mortals with attitudes breaking along court lines. And it makes that, like, commoners would have much more contact with both autumn people and general mortals, I suppose, but I wish we had more of that here. Yeah, it says there's more contact, but there's not more. It doesn't give any information about it. And we wrap up with a manners, beliefs, and morals section, which I guess is separate from court ethics or political inclinations. I do like the line here, the she in large part view life as a game, whereas commoners view it as a learning experience. That, mm-hmm. that sums up a lot. And the commoners with their knowledge of their own reincarnation, that has implications on the kind of morals that they'll have. So like the, the, the nice little sideboard from Gloria's journal. I think Marina was somewhat mistaken when she said the commoner society politics were <laughs> weren't as complex as that as she. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, this is pretty complicated. Yeah. The section is trying to tell me that duty is the meat and drink of commoners. And I'm like, okay, troll. Yeah. <laughs> that's the pro- that's, a, that's another problem with unreliable narrator that doesn't get brought up enough. It's like, uh, that's just too limited a perspective to be useful. <laughs> yeah. It's also very silly. I mean, duty and honor mm-hmm. yeah the, the end of this chapter feels a little scattered or a little tacked on but mm-hmm. i don't dislike the chapter by any means it's very mm-hmm. rich if we can call this kith book commoner this is the chapter two of a kith book it's just lore of the commoners versus lore of the nobility yeah basically because we've already had enough about them i think if i could add two things to this chapter i wish we'd had more about oaths and oath circles mm-hmm. and then more about interkith social dynamics that go beyond like here's this kith's opinion on this other kith like we get stuff about some of the broad philosophies and societies but i kind of want to know like when commoners get together what are the boggins doing what are the knockers doing Mm -hmm. what are the knockers saying to the boggins that kind of thing just i don't know yeah or something also just about like a bit more on motley's like just how to yeah and on mortals i could have used all of that rather than this weird random etiquette section (laughs) yes anyway Overall, it's fine. So this takes us into chapter three, Flesh and Bone. Flesh and Bone. And this is where the chapters get shorter. Yeah. Another wildly short character creation chapter. Yeah. It still felt like filler. (laughs) The actual character creation part was complete filler. (laughs) Yeah. It's like they go through the steps of character creation. Like, this is already in the book. I do like that it gives sort of an extended exegesis on why it's important to think about concept before actually putting dots on the sheet. Yep. Okay. That's... Oh, it's not complete filler. It's just it's yeah. a lot. Of... I didn't like the optional rule, but I'm like, hey, it's an optional rule of give childlings 10 bonus points, wilders 15 and grumps 20. Yeah. 
No. If you want to have an advanced start game, this is not how to do it. No. And it really doesn't work in C20. So. I don't know why there's a Kinane background. I, I don't get it. <laughs> so. You have Kinane in your family. Yeah, but like, what does that what does that mean? Are they are they allies? Are they contacts? Are they retainers? Are they dreamers? They, they made it kind of seem like yes. And they're not necessarily related to you. It just says you have mortal connections, known as kinane. Yep. So, yeah. And then there's there's some new merits and flaws. I love the fairy godparent, which requires you having the kinane background. Okay, but I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless the circumstances are quite unusual, storyteller's option, characters should possess the Canaan background to have this merit. I will fully exercise that option and say, take this merit, screw the background. Yep. The flaws I'm less into. Mm -hmm. Well, the merit, the problem is in C20 doesn't work mechanically. Perhaps not. Once per story, do a banality check instead of gaining banality automatically. I'm sure we could figure out a way to... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Maybe that'll be patron content. Mm Mm-hmm. There's the hostage flaw, too. I was like, uh, that was weird, and I don't know how to use it, because it doesn't tell me enough. But it can give you five points. Anyway, yes. Metamorphosis. At long last, metamorphosis. On a trim two pages, it's pretty similar to the C20 version, but it, overall it's weaker, actually. The durations are generally quite short. Yeah. Levels one and two are weak compared with chicanery, but overall it's still pretty fun, and I was very happy when it was introduced. It also says it can do things that it can't do in the cantrips, like the art description. Mm. With level five in C20, do you have to sacrifice a permanent point of glamour to do to change into a dragon or whatnot? Because I don't think you do. I don't remember. I don't yeah. think so. A lot of art's actually more powerful in C20. Yeah, that's true. I do like the treasures. We have Haven's Compass that points to the nearest freehold or glade. Baker's stones, where if you put any organic material on the stone and it specifies, yes, any kind of matter. Oh, I did not need that visual when I read it. Yeah. But it magically transforms into plain but edible cakes. I don't know if I'd eat it, depending on the edible matter. Listen. But uh, if you're in a pinch. If you're desperate, yeah. And if you're near the dream, in the dreaming or other places near glamour, the cakes get fancier and tastier. There you go. Uh, the Whatchamahoosit's pretty cool. Yes. Knocker Swiss Army Knife. The Bane Daggers, like the nice mix of highly specialized but very good at what it is. Yep. You have to take like a piece of the person, like a strand of hair or a drop of blood or whatever from your target, put it in. Minus three difficulty to hit and do an automatic extra die of damage, but only against that person and you can't reattune it. And when you kill them, it's destroyed. I do like the suggestion though that you could also make Bane Arrows, etc. Mm-hmm sympathetic magic connections hunter seeker thing what's your opinion on the dreamstone it is one of my favorite treasures even though it's very vaguely defined and open-ended and it's kind of a deus ex glamour and tied to the plot line you hate well that too but see the thing is it appears in the art of the second edition core book chapter nine where it's like the i don't know slua and the she or whatever skulking around stealing it, and then it turns into a bird and flies away. And that Mm -hmm. sort of visual narrative is one of my favorite artwork things in that book. So it's been one of my favorite treasures even before reading this. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's tied into the meta plot, but it doesn't have to be. Like, 
you can mm -hmm. just say, oh yeah, it's this all-powerful dream stuff manipulating bird-shaped stone thing. It's a MacGuffin on par with the Triumph Cask of Sorrows, and I'm into it. Yeah. But also, like we were talking about that metaplot before, it made a trod, not many trods, which I think mm. helps a bit. Yes, it can create dream creatures of immense power, fold the dreaming in on itself to create a pocket realm, or build a trod or gate where there was none before. There's the rumor, untested of course, that the stone could be used to find and open the gateway to Arcadia. And I'm thinking like, hmm, sounds familiar. I feel like we had four smaller spherical treasures that were meant to do that same thing last edition. <laughs> Maybe but... you use it and it lets you find the those things. <laughs> yeah. The, the immortal eyes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but this is where we get the bog and lost one who is its guardian as well. Yeah. Yeah, a bog and lost one. Like a mad, powerful bog and lost one guarding a magic treasure. I love that. Yes. <laughs> Whatever the treasure may be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's chapter three in all of its nine-page glory. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. And then chapter four, Harvest of Dreams. This felt to me just like a, an extra chapter of cut material from the Storyteller's Guide. We should some stuff about war. Yeah. I mean, it talks about theme versus mood where theme is the major goals your story is going to cover and mood is the general impression you want to leave behind, which I guess, I guess I'm okay with that. I always think of theme as what the Chronicle is about and mood is what do you want the players to feel? And that's, that's important. I mean, with that meaning a mood, I wouldn't want a single mood for a Chronicle. That's no, no, I don't think you should have a single theme either, but yeah. it's, you know, in any case, in connection with this book, the themes they suggest are, for commoner chronicles, a world gone mad in relation to David's disappearance. Although I'm not sure they'd really care that much about David. They would care more about like if the nobles are using it as an opportunity to seize power or if the mm -hmm. commoners can use it as an opportunity to self-liberate. That's what matters. <laughs> well, and it's, uh, I, well, we'll get to when we do War in Concordia, but there is the whole, if the she start up a civil war between each other, Right. I don't see the Accordance War just not restarting as well. Like, Yeah. Then Redemption is suggested, which, sure, but that's hardly unique to commoners as a theme. Mm -hmm. Shadows Over Home, I think, is probably the best, or at least most universal one out of these suggestions. That's one that let's always, it feels like, it's, it's good for new storytellers. Yes. Yeah. Don't play too hard into it, though. Like that's It's kind of like a default. A great darkness threatens the existence of their homes and the lives of their loved ones. See, okay, mm -hmm. if, you, if you need a hook, there it is. And then fortune and destiny. Your characters might impact the world of darkness itself. I'm thinking, isn't that kind of the general idea for these games? No, this is crossover impacting the world. I suppose. Lots of prodigals. They could influence the shape of the technocracy timetable or something. So this entire theme is you can run a crossover game. Yep. Okay. But a big one. And then a rumor of war is like, how to tie your chronicle into the meta plot. Mm -hmm. It's fine. There are media suggestions. All right. For moods in commoner chronicles, they suggest despair, nostalgia, boundless optimism, and rampant paranoia. All of which I think actually work pretty well for commoners in a she-dominated world. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd really like to see with those four ideas, if you have like, one character who embodies each of them and the chronicle can kind of just touch on each one in turn that would be pretty cool 
Uh, I would, well, yeah, I'd be careful with that. I, I don't want one person being totally full of despair and another one totally full of boundless optimism. And that's just like, and other person's going, oh, I remember the good old days. Like, I'd maybe not have them. Well, but you know, you could, you could have like the, the grump war vet and you could have like yeah. the really morose slua and you can have the super bouncy puka childling and then like the, I don't know, issue conspiracy theorist or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just don't don't go too hard into that. No, no, no. Like but I, I do think it's an interesting. Yeah. And none of these need to be centered in the dreaming at all. They all work incredibly well, yep. completely in the autumn world. So bonus points. Yeah, plots. Uh, I don't do things. Like <laughs> I always try to have an idea how to start the next session, and then maybe like a path if the players don't do something different or to take initiative. But like. Mm. Because, yeah, if you don't have any plans and the players don't take initiative, then you just sort of stare at each other. But yeah, it, it's rare for me to think like you'd have to be really heavy handed for the player for the game to actually go the way you planned it to. I think, Or you just know your players so well. But I think it's useful to a point. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the basic arc of advice here is like put down the rough timeline of events you hope to touch on expand things into scenes as if you're writing a play incorporating drama and suspense and then like add details where you need them like floor plans and maps and maybe flow mm -hmm. charts it kind of distills the basic plot creation advice from the storyteller's guide into like a broad option but i think yeah you have to know where to cut yourself off mm -hmm. as a storyteller and in relation to the kind of players you have yeah, like I definitely wouldn't do the whole chronicle that way. Cause right, 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 right. You have to leave some like, wiggle room. 15 sessions from now, we will be meeting <laughs> with the Duke. No, that's yeah. not. <laughs> but uh, again, why was this not just in the Storyteller's Guide? Or I mean, I think it was yeah. in the Storyteller's Guide. I don't know why it's here again. Because <laughs> so, none of this is like common or specific. This seems like should be in the core book, honestly, like that little right. bit. Right, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, settings. Yeah, settings, same. Using the dreaming. Sparingly. Mm -hmm. Remember that the Fae change in the dreaming as individuals. Mm -hmm. Although I don't really know that we need to do as this book suggests and have chimerical reflections of their political leanings. I think that might be more than is necessary. <laughs> so then characters. It says good characters are rooted in some theme. I like this. And I want chronicle themes to be flexible enough to accommodate character themes which I think when we had our conversation with Fetch about storytelling techniques, that's kind of what I was pushing towards in terms of like weaving those two sides together. Mm -hmm. But most of this kind of feels like a rehash. <laughs> yep. None of this is uh, common or specific. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the reminder is nice for all of these things, but like blue booking. Oh, there is, I do want to read this one paragraph on page 86 because I think it sums up a lot. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really good advice, which is players and storytellers have a dual obligation to each other. First of all, players should contribute ideas and wish lists for their characters. Telling the storyteller how much they want to visit the Forbidden Forest or throughout the Inept Baron is one way they contribute to the game. Most storytellers appreciate feedback and suggestions from players on what they want to do next. The storyteller also has an obligation to help players make their characters interesting, or in the worst case scenario, to gently explain to players that certain characters may not work. If you're the storyteller, running a chronicle set around finding three ancient tools of the knockers, a character who's a loner or likes to just sit around the balefire all the time is not going to fit. It's no fun for anyone if the storyteller can't make sure that all the characters have a reason to be involved in the chronicle. Mm -hmm. Solid. Solid advice. Yep. More elaboration would be good. 
but uh, in, I don't know, a storyteller book, but yes. Right. I mean, considering this is just like a random chapter in the commoner book. Okay. I'm really intrigued by this artwork on that page. It's very abstract, but like not well-defined. And I'm like, what? Is that a dapper Komodo dragon takes his lady love to the ball? <laughs> I think she's a red cap, but she has like wooden legs, a skull face. I thought, oh, I thought she was just supposed to be a red cap, but she's like in like a shirt and like a bra top thing. Anyway, this is why Drew Tucker should never be rendered in black and white. There's notes about conflicts in the sidebar that says villains are people too. Yeah. It's weirdly fixated on Ozymandias from Watchmen, but it's a pretty good sidebar. Oh, and then we get something relevant to this book specifically. Yay! On the conflicts, like how to use the she in commoner games, how to use other commoners in conflicts in other games, how to use secret societies for. Oh, there, so there it is. Some societies aren't so secret. There's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was talking about wanting more about interkith relations, I do want to know more about commoner versus commoner conflict. Yeah, and don't do it based on kit lines necessarily. Yeah, she versus non she is not the same as noble versus commoner or traditionalist versus mm-hmm. modernist or there's lots of You could of be of the same political persuasions in terms of these very broad ones they give and really be in conflict, so. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about, as another theme, strategic essentialism, which is a term, I believe, coined by Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak. It's that idea of if you are in a minority position in society and you have other folks who are in minority positions in society, you join together to enact some basic change or get some basic right that benefits all of you and then get into the granular stuff. Say like, okay, now that we've all secured this right, now let's address the individual stuff that we need. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how that could be manifest in a changeling game. Well, that gets really complicated because it's not just commoner versus noble or whatever. It's also Kithane versus mortal. Like the Kithane are in a... Minor, or the fae in general are in a minority situation versus the mortals the mortals don't even know they exist well that's the thing is that all of the fae can get on the same page of we should probably keep glamour alive mm-hmm. all of a court can get together on some of their court ideology all of a kith can get together all of the commoners can get together on we don't want the she to oppress us but then like as soon as they achieve something then it's what's next and then you have to start drilling down mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's just an idea for that's what this sort of politicking stuff makes me think about. Mm -hmm. I don't really care about the prodigal or autumn people conflict story hooks. Didn't we already? Yeah. It's kind of already did that in the part on it. That's the thing too. When these like the whole book's about story hooks, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of. Certainly this chapter is. No, but the rest of the book in theory, it's for your game, right? Yeah. Because there's more on nobles, houses, and commoners, more on product. But a lot of it sort of feels like a retread of earlier things. This is like part of the weird organization of this book is that we got commoner perspectives on noble houses back in chapter two. And now in chapter four, we have noble houses perspectives on commoners. <laughs> yep. Couldn't those two things have been put next to each other? Yep. But I suppose if you're if you're saying, well, the commoner facing stuff is for the players and the noble facing stuff or whatever is for the storytellers, maybe that's the reason. Yeah. But um, I think we covered all of this in Book of Houses already, too. So. And we got resolutions. Pretty solid advice. Do some aftercare, tie up loose ends. You don't have to tie up all of them, but try. Yep. Deliver on player expectations. And then story seeds. Eleven of them. Again, more specific useful things. Yeah. 
So I don't I don't think we need to go through all of them, but were there any favorites that you had? Nah, I mean, the name is Things Boggin Weren't Meant to Know, but... It, it is a great name. It's it's The name belies how uninteresting the description of the story seat is. <laughs> mm-hmm. I liked the Concordian candidate as a shameless send-up of the Manchurian candidate. I thought that mm. was a, a fun espionage and intrigue political story seed. And I liked Last Will and Cantrip, where there's people fighting over a freehold bequest. I thought that was a good good idea. But yeah, I mean, some of them are interesting, some of them are definitely not. The last one sounds like a lifetime television movie to me. Rich fee, poor fee. Yeah. It's a fun conceit where it's like, a commoner character is promoted in their mortal job, but now they're the supervisor of a she noble. Actually, that is my favorite one out of these. I think it's, it's just, it's got the mortal side. Like they didn't really bring up as much the, the mortal life thing as much. Yeah. In this. I'll allow it. That's chapter four. Again, pretty mm-hmm. surprisingly short. I mean, considering how much we just went through the fact that it's only what? 10 pages, 11 pages. Mm-hmm. They packed it in. Although, again, it had a lot of things that maybe they didn't need to put in there. Yeah. Now we have memes, faces, and places. Yes. I still don't get... All the books have this. Like, all the Changeling books have this. They have lists of interesting NPCs without stats, and then they have another section of lists of uninteresting NPCs with stats. And, like, why can't they just make interesting NPCs with stats? Because you're only allowed to use the (laughs) templates for boring characters. Okay. Do we want to do the usual thing of like, if, if you want to say the names, I'll give my like rapid fire one sentence description. Sure. Well, I want to say I have a favorite one, but we can get that. I have favorites too. We can, yeah, we can do favorites. Okay, so let's go that. Okay, Dewey Saint John Flanders. So he is a satyr, she worshipper, politician, and historical academic, I suppose. Uh, Gwilym Seneschal of Gwyn, uh, Gwynedd. Gwynedd. Uh, he's the Boggan Seneschal from Isle of the Mighty, who's on the lookout for a high monarch of Cymru, also known as Wales. Which, there's yeah. a story hook in there as well. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a sucker for a Boggan Seneschal. But anyway. Uh, I'm a sucker for other high kings who aren't David. Yep. Yeah. Lorette Pascanel? She's a raccoon puka spy for the She, and she became a conservative after Redcaps murdered her kind Fiona Lord at the start of the Accordance War. And she's also from Canada. It's she another, is. This is a lot more CanCon than most of these books. Her name reads Quebecoise to me, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Pascal. Lorette. Yeah, it is. Lorette. I don't see where she's from in Kingdom Northern. Yeah. So. yeah. Uh, General Lyros. Uh, he's famous. He's the troll George Washington. But name is like Super She. Yeah. Pro She. Malaxon Halvdan Bright Skull. The troll ambassador from the kingdom of Jutland, or Denmark, to Neustria, or France. That's going to be hard to use in your commoner game, I think. Yeah, probably. But he's also an armorer. King Morwood of Mist? Again, we've seen him in the Isle of the Mighty. He's the knocker ruler of the kingdom of Mist, who switches off with uh, Carolinda. Half the year Seelie, half the year Unseelie. They keep the tradition alive. It's interesting because he's an Unseelie conservative. So. Mm-hmm. Upala Sengupta. She is an Ishu childling rescuer. She's part of the... Or no, she's not part of the Order of Elithia, but she's been considered for it. I don't know what... Some of this art... I'm like, the art direction went wrong or something? Like, why does she have a goatee? Uh, I mean, she's allowed. 
Yeah. No, it's just not. <laughs> she also fights Dante. And... No, she's cool. Yeah. I'm just like, the picture, I'm like, mm. I just feel like they got the wrong art direction. Denslow Mattingsley. We're into the moderates now. <laughs> yeah, moderates. And that's my, this is my favorite of these characters. I'm a sucker for weird Boggan concepts, I think. Oh. Well, he's a Boggan information broker and mathematician who's kind of between courts. Mm-hmm. Fitz MacArthur. One of my favorites. A knocker grump bookbinder and publisher in the Bay Area. Kalana Thomas. An issue travel writer whose books are published by the aforementioned Fitz MacArthur. Yeah. And might be getting a website that's chimerical. <laughs> How modern. Uh, Marina of Beacon Hills. This is our satyr sidekick to the narrator who owes fealty to Krishna Alexis the Sage in the Dreaming. Morley Wharton. Slew a tea party aficionado and possible spy. Yeah, and actual tea parties you might want to go to if you're not a Slua. So. Mm-hmm. Audrey Redwine. A pisky circus trainer with prodigal contacts and possibly connected to the Midnight Circus, if I'm, if I'm reading between mm-hmm. the lines here. Portia Jessup. I don't know what this art direction was. <laughs> um, a fallen puka in Wisconsin who's kind of a tool for the Baroness against her former friends, uh, against Portia's former friends. She was part of this little kid gang, and then the rest of the kid gangs got sent away, but she was kept as like a ward. Vlad Rogvodov? The red cap who wants more uncelia representation in Parliament of Dreams. Mm-hmm. And aside from him, I don't really see what most of the rest of these have to do with, like, the political angle. But... Well, it sort of feels like the political angle as the book, as you progress through the book, becomes less relevant. Yes. <laughs> Fair. And then you have radicals, outlaws, and naughty pakes. Naughty pakes. Okay, some of these are just like, what? Uh, Aeneas, bloody thread, zotope? Yeah. Um, he's a satyr. He's gross. Skip. Yeah. Mr. Foster. My other favorite. Uh, he's a porcupine puka who loves trees. And he gets so sad when the kids come to like hurt his trees with fire and stuff. So he turns them into trees and it's great. Mm-hmm. That's a good villain. If you want to he's play wonderful. another game. If you were running a hunter game and uh, some sort of hunter, whatever meaning by hunter, and want to have changelings show up as antagonists, he's a good one. Gruok of Dalariada? Yes, she is the lover and advisor of King Ross of Dariada yep. and a former spy. Another Slua spy. If you want a half-topless picture of a Slua, there's that art there. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of a Klimt painting. Hellion? The unhinged red cap leader of Emma's Little Helpers, which I really feel like this was... She's like a straw feminist. She's like, oh, she's an evil man-hater. And I'm like, come on. I feel like... We just got like that drop today of the Werewolf Fifth Edition, and they changed the Black Furies in this, and like she's tied to the Black Furies, and I'm like, did they just read this part and then decide to change the right. Black Furies based on this description? Right. It's like it's the shallowest possible idea of what an avenging lady looks like, and I would love to see something more interesting. And it's only the second grossest character. In this right. Yeah. Ragnil Devon Folk. Knocker clock expert and co-founder of the Galatian Confederation. I like her. She's pretty cool. Ryle, spy master of King Miles of Willows. I mean, that's that's his whole character. That's yep. that's yep. his whole thing. <laughs> Make it him in the other book, yeah. And then, oh, that duke that's not a duke. Duke Torin Nagulon. Yes. 
a powerful unseely warlord who leads the Iron Brigade and is totally willing to use cold iron. Maybe it's just his name is Duke. No, no, he's calling him. He's trying to make himself a fake Duke, basically. He's All the right. Iron Duke. And then we have places. So these are a bunch of, it didn't even realize, it's like weird. These are all like places in the dreaming actually would be fine if they weren't in the dreaming. Like these don't sound like dream realm places in the dreaming to me. I think the second one is not in the dreaming. The Care Flamingo Botanical and Butterfly Gardens. But yes. You're right. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. The Binaz Bazaar. I'm like between, between the near and far dreaming. Uh, it's a market. Yep. Okay, cool. Why is this in, nothing about this is dreaming. The bizarre to me is like that sort of orientalist concept of, I mean, like from Aladdin or something, you know, that sort of like, oh, here's all the stalls with people shouting their wares and everything. Like, have you ever been to a farmer's market? Well, right. Yeah, that's the thing. Or a uh, flea market or anyway. Or indeed Istanbul, the Grand Bazaar. (laughs) Yeah, well, the very specifics, but it's like, which would be like, oh, it's different animals and different. I guess so. I mean, yeah, it could be it could be a little more dreaming ish. Yeah. So Yeah, there's Care Flamingo. I do quite like this one. And then the Dragon's Den. It's in the far dreaming. Again, if this was like a freehold in the autumn world, I'd be like, cool, this is a great description. But it's like it's a nice pub. Like, why is it? Looking at the today's menu sidebar though, I'd wager this is the best place to get venison yeah. on a stick this side of the forest of Lies. yeah that's like look at this food it's like okay yeah i could make this like right, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> cheese oh okay <laughs> cold milk maybe you can't get cold milk or cheese in the dreaming maybe it's just not allowed except that this <laughs> yeah they're just there's the exotic banal side of banality in the far dream oh and then the arcadia gateway and it's like other places to reference dreams and nightmares this doesn't but this talks about the dreams and nightmares okay I think this might be the only spot where the Arcadia Gateway, they're specifically said to be lost ones who live there because they are Mm -hmm. fae. They just never became changelings. So I think that's implied in other texts that mention the Arcadia Gateway, but here it's actually spelled out. Well, or lost ones or true fae. It's a right. right, right. Functionally, it's the same thing, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, epilogue, which is the end of our story. Yes. Not the end of the book, just the end of the story. No. That's a weird place for it, too. But yeah. it's been a chapter, and it's not in the last chapter. Yes. So Julia goes back to the sage with time to spare, because she had a year to do her quest. She reclaims her she-form by delivering copies of the Seely House's histories. There's an Ilanid she who sneakily followed them, who arrives and make threatening pronouncements. And then Julia is inspired by the dreaming to call out his treachery and responsibility for the Night of the Iron Knives. And I kind of liked that. I kind of liked that moment of she didn't realize that she knew what she was saying, but the dreaming was like yeah. moving through her to speak the truth. Yeah, little thing she had stolen from House Elenud, a floppy disk Yes, of their secrets. So that's weird. They were already archaic technology. Anyway, and then... Uh, spoilers upcoming. If you don't want to hear spoilers, skip the next 30 seconds. Yeah. Yes. Contained the actual secrets that was all the treachery that Hazelund was behind that Knight of Iron Knives. And then Krishna turns into a dragon and chars the Elenichi. I thought the story was kind of cool. But yeah, yeah. Like the writing of it, too, I liked. He's also the first and maybe only proper dragon that we get named with mm-hmm. a story. I hadn't even read this but this is like how i use dragons in my yeah games. this is not a chimera <laughs> like this is a this is a whole ass bygone dragon 
in the middle of the you can stop this with a chimera yeah but i mean i i think he's a bygone i think he's a real deal dragon julia is dismissed she hurries back home with marina who she now desperately wants to bone um but she drops her memory thing and so when she leaves the dreaming she forgets basically everything that's happened but the satyr still has her memory thing yes if the truth were known how many innocent lives would be lost yep and then they giggle their way into the bedroom oh okay anyway it's a good story i like the ending better than the beginning (laughs) then we get chapter six the templates from the scale of templates i don't think these are the worst i think i like them roughly in the order they appear yeah so the satyr highwayman solid issue gamer i'm like it felt a little bit uh on the nose self-referential yeah but i i still dig it yeah she's a childlike still the slua mortician i'm trying to understand the anyway (laughs) the art had me a little bit confused but well don't all morticians carry bloody saws around with them (laughs) yeah and the troll bartender that's missing a leg see like perfectly reasonable npc troll bartender yeah but as a player character i'm like yeah yeah and then i don't know i kind of like the red cap <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah this is where i started to like shrug somewhat yeah then a bog and doula that looks like an accountant or something he's got a pager yep he's got a pager oh it's definitely a description fit there it's just okay i think this might be the first place where i like actually saw the word doula this is where I learned it from. Now it's a whole profession. Mm-hmm. Who knew? I am glad that these templates actually have the second edition character sheet. <laughs> With all the abilities that are supposed to be there where they're supposed yes. to be. <laughs> no no myth lore or gamatria. Yep. At last. Yes, it's the best character templates. Yeah. The character sheets work. I think that a couple of them are off in terms of their stats, like in terms of the point distribution, but yeah. generally it's pretty good. Well, does it actually say it's supposed to be for player characters? Well, no. I don't even true. say what these are for. But that's the thing. Like, whenever I see templates, I assume these are for players who just need a quick uh. regen. See, I assume these are, you need a quick NPC with stats. Here you go. Yeah, well, I mean, pregens either way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. We have art where I swear this is drawing based on some of the stuff in the LARP book, some of the people in there, but it's the reference. It's weird that the Spriggan all have like the same face. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're a Spriggan. How do I know? Because you have that face. Right. (laughs) They can only afford that one art model reference. But yes, here's where we get Piskies and Spriggan. And I guess Spriggan is the plural of Spriggan because there's no S. Like Puka Hmm. or Slua. Or she. Or she. <laughs> or Ishu. All right. We get Piskies, which, unlike in C20, do not have weird shape-shifting powers. No. They are semi-nomadic, fond of children, believe in the inherent goodness of most mortals and fae, and are adaptable, but also kleptomaniacs. And due to the way the story tells us to mechanics work, some of the best uh, fighter characters. <laughs> Truth. We get that dex bonus. Yeah, they're just Kender. Yep. They are short but solid, with olive skin and silver hair, often in braids. Mm-hmm. They like Boggins, Ishu, Puka, Satyrs, and Trolls, and they're less fond of Knockers, Redcaps, She, and Slua. But mixed comments about each of them, as is common in stereotype sidebars. Or, I'm sorry, Outlook's sidebars. Mm-hmm. And then the Spriggan. I do like the what? t-shirt. <laughs> what does he have against Wendy's? Like, what? I 
It's fine. <laughs> I had to go, is that for Wendy's or is that for uh, the character from S, not the SCTV? No, I'm pretty sure it's Wendy's. <laughs> yep. But yes, the saline equivalent of the Piskies are greedy, lazy, except when guarding things, and ugly. They smell bad and they like kidnapping, but they make good guards. Their birth rates and frailties, I think, are wildly out of joint. Like, the frailty isn't really a frailty. It just says, oh, they love kidnapping. Yeah. And it's also, they're like the nicest Thalane. Right. Both this and C20. It's like, well, they kidnap children, but they don't hurt them. You have things that like kill people and eat parts of them. It's like their shtick. And like, <laughs> it's like causing emotional distress, which is not cool, but you know, yep. there's a lot worse out there. But then also they have the birthright to cause rain and hailstorms with manipulation plus kenning, no glamour expenditure and no difficulty mentioned, but with five successes could draw a storm that would damage crops and homes. And I'm like, that's serious skycraft magic and you're just giving it to them as a birthright. Yep. Problematic from a game balance perspective. Yeah, well the whole thing's just, it's not even just game balance, like game coherence perspective. Yeah. I mean, these kits are literally tacked on to the end of the book. Yeah. I don't even think there's a mention. Is there any mention of Spriggans anywhere else but here? Uh, in this book? I feel like there must be, but I don't know. We do have that one Pisky mm -hmm. in the chapter five. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I feel like, yeah, they added the Pisky. It's like, oh crap, we forgot the Pisky. Right. <laughs> oh, we need a Thalion to go with them for reasons. We got, we got one question to bring up. Um, yeah, because another there's some other questions that were answered, I think, by our episode. But Count Clockwise asks, do you two prefer this book's version of the Piskies or the C21s? I'm partial to the original myself, but I fully can't explain why. Difficult to answer. <laughs> I like the C20 Piskies better. I think I can say that. Hmm. Because I think that they really... Because the Piskies here were almost like a throwaway kith. They have their splat right up here. We get one example in chapter five. I believe there's like a little bit more in Book of Lost Houses because they're connected to House Beaumain. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be something in War and Concordia that I'm forgetting about. But they were just kind of like one note. In C20, I feel like they put more thought into what is the dream that these Fae represent. Mm. And to me, they're the dream of like meeting people on the road and forming those kind of tenuous bonds, which like, feel really deep and important but then the next day you part ways and you never see each other again and it's that spirit of like camaraderie but also movement and adaptability that to me is what they signify mm -hmm. the shape-shifting part i'm like I i'm indifferent to but and you know. i find if they had changed the frailty like i find the frailty in c20 even though it's the same one basically is incongruous to the rest of what they did hmm. it's like they did flesh that out and make this new kith, but kept the old kleptomania for some reason. I'm like, I, I don't like that. Yeah. This one in this book feels like they just made Kender, but... <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I I would rather have the C21s than Kender, I will state, for the record. Yeah, but I... Yeah, so it's like, I'm torn on this. I'm like, I don't like either. <laughs> so it's... Yeah. I quite like the C20 Piskies, I'll admit, because... Okay. frankly i feel more comfortable with them as a wanderer character than i would playing an issue mm. i don't know i'm just glad they didn't give the frailty to the issue that would have been terrible. no but if i had to pick a new frailty for the piskies in c20 i might do something akin to what they've done with the ravnos in v5 like something along the mm -hmm. lines of they can't stay in the same place 
for like more than three nights. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. But I assume that's like a, a, a mythic connection. Like, you know, pixies take mm-hmm. things. Like, <laughs> And I assume that's why the Spriggans can make hailstorms for some unknown reason. Yeah, the Spriggans are just complete. What? <laughs> yeah. Like the two birthrights and their frailty and their description. I'm like, just like, what are these? What? <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, overall C20. And I, I know I said more on the Discord on that topic along with some of the other, uh, responding to some of the other Discord questions, but yeah. So yeah, what's your overall thoughts on this book? I think it is one of my favorite books in the entire line. I don't know if I would say it's my favorite favorite, but it's top five probably. It has yeah. so much that is, in my opinion, pretty well balanced between like fluff and crunch and nougat and frosting all of the four main food groups of role-playing writing. I can find something to use on almost every page, even if there are some things that I would leave out. And I think it was sorely needed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still sorely needed because the landscape of the game has been yeah. so she-heavy and so nobility-heavy. And I would love to see more commoner-focused stuff. Yeah, It's kind of funny. I think I have more criticisms of this book than you, but I also think if you are a C20 storyteller and you uh, you're like... Hey, Josh, I want to buy one book from before C20. And it's just generic. Like, I don't really know anything about your game or what you're trying to do or anything. I'd be like, this book. But also Dreams and Nightmares. Dreams and Nightmares is great for the dreaming. Yes. If you're not going to have a dreaming heavy game, just like in anime, if you're running in an anime game in C20, you need an anime the secret way because you can't run an anime from what's in. (laughs) There's a lot of things like that. But like for just would come up in like mm-hmm. 90% of the games. I think this book is very useful, yeah. at least for the storyteller. When you said Lore of the Kiths, I mean, that is really, it's like the Ur-Kith book that mm-hmm. dovetails with all the others. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that for the Notables books. I don't think you yes. need those Notables books nearly as much as you need this book. Right, because like when you think about the Nobles, the House books, yeah, they're not generic, but if you want individual House information, sure. But like... Yeah, Noble's The Shining Host. They also reprinted a lot of it, like, especially if the C20's Player's Guide, all the politics stuff for, like, the right, mobile right, end right. of things. You, you, not everything's in there, but you got a lot. I can agree with that assessment. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine there are C20 players who are not interested in learning more about the commoner ethos or the mindset for, mm-hmm. for running a commoner character. Like, that's... Or the Accordance War. Yeah. It's a very good book on just the history of the Accordance War if you want things to pull out. Well, it's, it's been another 25 years, so... Is it still relevant? I don't know. I feel like C20 should have also almost just reset if they were going to change things. Like, they already changed a bunch of other metaplot things. Why not just move up the Accordance War by 20 years? Hmm. Well, then there, there would have to be maybe, like, <laughs> the Berlin Wall coming down opened the Dreaming or something. I don't know. Yep. Actually... Hmm. Flagging that thought for later. Yeah, specifically 1999. I'm like, The Matrix came out? Yeah. No, that's not. <laughs> There's nothing in that year particularly I would use, but. Well, and then the Red Star and everything. I mean, there's that millenarianism kind of embedded in the text. Yeah. I mean, and then they got rid of it in C20, but that's another. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that topic. Like I said, it's not like they didn't change the meta plot for C20, so. For mm. <laughs> the history. Oh, I also want to say, I love the glass icon of the ladybug. Mm -hmm. It's like the commoner icon, and it's wonderful. I want that in color. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. You can uh, find us, changelingthepodcast.com. You can send us an email, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. You can send us a toot, changelingpod at 
dice.camp. You can go to our YouTube channel for Changeling the Podcast. We also have a Facebook page for Changeling the Podcast. You can join our Discord. Please join our Discord. Yeah, where we can talk about all sorts of things like why is commoner? Why is commoner? Yep. Discord.me slash CTP. Yes. And all the links will be in our show notes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yes. All the links will be in yes. the show notes. And once again, I'm Josh. I am that Accordance War Hellraiser known as Booga. And remember, uh, don't ask where those cakes came from. Commoners of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your points of temporary banality. If you're lost and hungry in the wilds of the digital dreaming, consider stopping by the Changeling the Podcast Discord server. We have channels where you can take your leisure, remark upon the fearless tinted sunsets, and enjoy the best venison on a stick this side of the far dreaming. Follow the silver path to www.discord.me ctp and join the community. You might also consider supporting our show on Patreon at www.patreon.com changelingthepodcast to help us continue bringing fey-flavored content to you each week. Patrons get benefits, including a shout-out at the end of each episode. So herewith, the fabulous folk to whom we wish to express our gratitude. Derek, Dorkadus, Oreo, Razgabuz, Sanjigger, Sija, Terry Robinson, and Tricerabeth. We also appreciate reviews on the podcast platform of your greatest listening convenience, and you're always welcome to mention our show to your motley friends, oath-sworn family, or liege lords in desperate need of an auditory comeuppance. Many thanks for listening, and until next time, keep on dreaming.